welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and today we're looking forward to having a conversation with Scott Sauls. Scott is senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. He served as Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City as a lead and preaching pastor, and also planted two churches in the Midwest. Scott is the author of several books, including his newest, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, how God redeems regret, hurt, and fear in the making of better humans. But before we hear from Scott, let's go to Ed Stetzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Executive Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. Okay, good. It's good to have Scott Sauls on the program. We're going to carry on a conversation that's both deeply personal, but I think applicable to so many pastors and church leaders. Uh, we want to also remind you, you can check out extended portions of some of our interviews at churchleaders.com slash plus. And if you're enjoying interviews, it would be helpful if you left us a review wherever you download your podcast. Uh, Scott, I found, well, first of all, I've gotten to know Scott. We actually have a famous video together where we walk into mm-hmm. Rick Warren's secret library. And so hundreds of thousands of people have walked with Scott and Ed through Rick <laughs> Warren's secret library, So, which was, was secret until we posted that video. Uh, but Scott, I, I, I really appreciated, admired your work and found this this to be deeply personal in what you wrote and more. Con- continual theme is regret, hurt, and fear. And the last two years have been just remarkably hard on a lot of pastors and church leaders. So I think the book will minister to many people kind of walking through some of the challenges. But, but help us first, you know, why did you write the book and what misconceptions are you trying to address? Well, thanks for having me on, Daniel and Ed. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, in terms of what motivated me to write the book, it really was born out of the pandemic season that hopefully we're starting to inch out of. Uh, And uh, it just struck me as a time where uh, normal human pain points, uh, and I, I, I sort of organized the book around uh, three of them, regret, hurt, and fear, which I think are sort of all encompassing um, uh, of human pain points. But uh, I felt like uh, all of those uh, pain points were being amplified, right? They always, they've always existed ever since the world became a fallen place. But uh, I think people's anxiety levels, um, you know, relational hostility, um, you know, social upheaval, loneliness, isolation, all of these things just sort of reached a fever pitch. And, and I was just in a, you know, a season of talking with publishers and book agents about what the next, um, you know, offering might be. And it just, it felt right to uh, do a project that would uh, address uh, those sorts of things uh, from a gospel centered perspective. And, um, and so, yeah, that's how the book was born, and and I hope it helps some people. Yeah, it's I I, I know that so many of folks in my circles uh, listen to you as a you know as a, a compass, and so I bet you so many folks are so curious, like what were the past couple of years like for you as a pastor, specifically through the pandemic. Well, I you know I, I think that this this particular podcast and your your aud- your primary audience of church leaders is very appropriate for subjects like these because uh, according to Barna's latest research, about 
40% or just shy of 40% of pastors are actually looking to leave the ministry, uh, which is uh, kind of staggering to me. But, um, but the, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Daniel, I forgot your question. <laughs> I, I, I was just, yeah, yeah. What was the pandemic like for you personally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Gotcha. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, those 40% of pastors, um, you know, they're the ones who want to leave, but the remaining 60%, I think also, uh, had uh, a whole lot of, um, um, disruption and disorientation come our way, uh, through, through, really more than two years of upheaval. I mean, when you're, when you're calling and when your, your job, your responsibility is to, is to bring people together. And all of a sudden the whole world is saying, you know, tell everybody to not come together. Uh, it throws everything into upheaval. And so for me, I think a real low, low point was, um, was preaching to an empty sanctuary on Easter Sunday, <laughs> realizing that, uh, I, I can't see anybody. I can't read anybody's uh, eye contact or body language. Uh, it just felt so not incarnational. I, I felt so not together with with our people, and I, I think that um, that's that was a universal feeling for pastors of just feeling lonely for the people that God has called us to serve and be in community with, and. Um, of course, it triggers all kinds of anxieties and fears. You know, what's this going to mean for um, for us? You know, we just we'd spent eight years, um, you know, doing a revitalization work and had plenty of um, you know really wonderful momentum in terms of people coming to Christ and new congregations planted. And um, right as the pandemic started, we were about to launch our fourth. Uh, and, cro- and, and cross-cultural uh, congregation led by African-American leadership. And, um, you know, we had all the staff and the team that we'd brought on and then boom, this pandemic happens. And so we actually ended up planting that congregation on Zoom. <laughs> and and yeah. uh, it's a vibrant congregation right now. But, but back then, I mean, we, we, felt, uh, we felt very unmoored, uh, quite honestly. And uh, I had, you know, bouts with depression bouts with certainly with loneliness and isolation. You know, I think Tom Rainer says it well, he says, you know, how would you feel? He was trying to represent pastors during the pandemic. He said, how would you feel if 60% of your friends just disappeared and didn't talk to you anymore? And, <laughs> and I think that was a very common experience for pastors. And I, I don't exempt myself from that. It was very hard season. Yeah, you um, you write really personally uh, in Beautiful People, Don't Just Happen. I want to encourage people to pick up the book. Um, one of the things that even here you talked about is the last two years, and um, as we inch out of COVID, to use your language, and and you know, and we all hope that to be true, it appears, though, that the cultural convulsion we're walking through isn't ending with the end of COVID. We're in some of the most divided times. This is the most difficult yeah. time I've ever led. I'm encouraging pastors to build reservoirs of resilience to get in community with others. And so when when you wrote Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, you talk about regret, hurt, and fear. You talked about some of your own journey, and you, as you talk about bouts of depression and more. Um, it seems it's really hard for pastors and church leaders to say, hey, I struggle with this too. And I think that's a gift you've given us here. Um, how might you encourage pastors and church leaders to acknowledge their struggle in themselves but also to acknowledge their struggles congregationally or with their leadership. What would that look like? Well, I mean, it's it's a it's an occupational hazard, I think, to some pastors to even think about 
um, doing uh, real self-disclosure about our various pain points and struggles, right? So I, I'll never forget back in seminary, um, you know, one of the prominent pastors in, in the city where I, I went to seminary, St. Louis, Missouri, um, took his own life. He was 35 years old, you know, one of the most, um, you know, vibrant churches in the whole city of St. Louis. And it, it just took everybody by surprise. And his, his suicide note was published uh, in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And uh, in that note, um, you know, he said that he'd been struggling with depression for quite some time and uh, just couldn't do it anymore. It felt incredibly isolating. And, uh, and essentially what he said in the note was, uh, when a pastor lets his people know that he's depressed, he will soon lose his ministry. And so, so he was operating off of an assumption that nobody wants to be led by a person who's weak. And um, so, you know, that, that, that really sent me and I think a lot of, a lot of my fellow students back then on a journey of, of just looking into scripture and looking at who those people are that, that have had the greatest impact on us and that we want to be like. And, and one of those people was a man named Jerem Bars, who was a, was a professor uh, for us and had worked for many years with Francis Schaeffer, uh, started the English Labrie chapter and was just a man of great empathy and compassion and came to Christ through a suicidal season of his life and, and, and through, you know, his trials and struggles and, and the deep pain that he'd experienced during certain seasons of his life, he'd actually been shaped into this incredibly empathetic pastoral person who shows up so well for other people. And, and so we had that contrast uh, you know, to the narrative that nobody wants to be led or pastor shepherded by a weak person. And then here we have this, this person whose whole life was that, um, you know, up and up, up until, and also proceeding from his conversion to Christianity, he had all kinds of physical issues as well, uh, even as a, uh, you know, our teacher. And, and it was the way that he, you know, spoke the gospel and shepherded and and led from that place of weakness that was so incredibly inspiring to all of us. And so um, I just resolved as a seminary student, like I I I I think that I think that this guy, Jaron Bars, has it right because you know, Romans 7, Paul's talking about his own you know, struggle with envy and coveting and discontentment, and and then you know the end of his life and ministry, he calls himself the chief of sinners, uh, wretched man that I am, you know, again in Romans seven. And then we, we see King David just pouring out his distress in the Psalms, which, you know, is, is our gift of what a robust prayer life, especially for leaders looks like, uh, in the Psalms. And what you see is this incredible authentic authenticity and, and, and realness, um, that I think the people of God actually need. I, I think the people of God are just hungry and thirsty for um, a leader to show them, uh, even publicly, what it looks like to struggle well, uh, not not to bleed on our people, not to you know make our ministry about us, not to turn you know the churches or ministries we lead into group therapy sessions for our issues, right? Because uh, you know. Pastors can do that, right? Um, like the pulpit is no place to bleed on people. Um, 
but but if we can steward our stories and if we can especially steward you know our guilt and shame or you know the category of regret or our hurt sort of the 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 ways that we've you know hurt ourselves by bad decision making the way we've been ways we've been betrayed maybe by others or just living in fallen skin or or just our own anxieties and struggles about the future the more we can share those things as as a bridge toward how Christ and the gospel are uh, pro- provide relief and solutions and a way forward in those things. I think the better leaders we're going to be. Um, I don't want to be led by somebody who has it all together because that person's lying. Uh, yeah. That person's not being honest, and I, I I can't I can't follow that honestly. <laughs> you, you know, and so I, I think we need to get over the illusion that people don't want to be led by somebody who experiences weakness. Uh, I think okay. that's an illusion. Let me let me push back a little bit because I mm-hmm. I actually want what you say to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I noticed a few years ago that uh, pastors, prominent pastors, prominent successful pastors often feel the freedom to share their struggles uh, because I think they in part are prominent, whatever standards of success you want to use, prominent successful pastors. But what I found is that pastor of the church of 300 or that pastor of the church of 75 finds less freedom to share that because people might wonder, does that undermine? People probably aren't wondering when you share your you share your struggle with bouts of depression, things of that sort. That Phil Reichen here at, at Wheaton College has done a, a powerful talk on that as well at, in our mm-hmm. chapel. But you're sort of at the place where people sort of see you can manage that. I think... Part of the challenge is a lot of people are afraid. They're insecure. You talk about insecurity uh, in the book. Um, But you also point to your relationship with God freeing you from this mindset. So address my pushback, if you don't mind, because to that pastor of that church of 75 or 200, I think it feels different than being an author and a pastor of a church Mm. like yours Mm -hmm. uh, at, you know, uh, after decades of successful ministry. And then talk to us about how that spiritual relationship with God shapes that. Help us out. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, uh, Ed, that it, you know, it it can actually become sort of this self-serving uh, part of, of a big platform, you know, that, mm-hmm. oh, look, he's so skilled and so gifted and, and has led this, you know, growing thing and he's real, you know, I like, like right. there, it can become, you know, kind of part of somebody's brand, uh, if we're not careful. And I, I would say, look, if, if I, or, or someone else is leading a, a kind of a larger ministry with a larger reach, just make sure that, you know, you know, transparency isn't staged, uh, you know, yeah. Cause that's manipulative, uh, you know, to, to turn your, you know, to, to treat the pulpit as the stage for, you know, being vulnerable. So people will be drawn to you, uh, entirely misses the point of, of ministry. The only reason to ever share your weakness publicly is to point people to Christ, not to you and not to your, you know, your weakness. And, and which means we need to be sparing, uh, about, you know, the depths to which we, we go in terms of, of kind of that full-blown transparency, right? I waited two years before I let my congregation here know that, um, you know, that I've experienced anxiety and depression. And I, I think that was right, uh, in my case, at least to wait that long because there needed to be a trust built and, right. and, um, 
you know, to the degree that people would know that I'm not manipulating them. Um, and so that's an easy thing to do when you don't know your people well, and when your people don't know you well, which, which sadly is the case oftentimes, uh, at least with a lot of your people in a larger ministry setting, but those smaller settings, I've been part of those too, right? Uh, as we, we planted three churches or two churches and were involved with, um, I don't know the, the redeemer plant wasn't really a plant because we started with a lot, a lot of people, but, but, um, but the, the two churches that we planted in the Midwest, we started with well, the first one, we started at zero. Uh, right, it was just, right. you know, my wife and me and our dog and our, you know, you count your pets when you're planting. Oh, sure you, do. you count children, <laughs> We've all planted have, here. you count your, your unborn children, yeah. uh, in, yeah. you know, in the, in the, you know, worship attendance and stuff. And so I can remember, uh, kind of an early, living room worship service and and you know we were still kind of a core group and and you know my wife had had actually been going through some some anxiety and uh she just got to a point where she's like i can't i can't i can't do this i can't hide this uh and i'm like well tell someone about it and like right in the middle of the service somebody said patty can we pray for you and so so right there my wife you know shares with everybody i've just been going through the hardest time and like those, you know, 30 or so people get around her and pray over her. And, and, and it was a very humbling experience for both of us, right? Cause we're supposed to be the leaders and we ended up being shepherded by, you know, these people, most of whom we just recently met. And, um, but that, that actually set the trajectory for what that church became, uh, mm-hmm. And in a very positive way, uh, where, you know, my wife being willing to be genuinely, um, you know, be a genuine struggler, uh, with, with no, you know, staged aspects to it with, with no, you know, PR, you know, branding, you know, aspects, uh, but, but of just being a fellow struggler, uh, to, and I, I think the more that, that those of us who are called to a shepherding role can let our people know that we are, we are primarily sheep uh, and secondarily shepherds, uh, and 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 um, you know, and I think I think God has done us such a great favor uh, by by giving us shepherds in Scripture who were um, you know many of them train wrecks. Uh, you know, Abraham and Isaac are terrible husbands. Jacob is a deceiver. King David did King David things uh, and had a kid through the wife of Uriah, as Matthew one reminds us. Um, you know, Saul of Tarsus before he became the apostle Paul, you know, Peter bull in a China shop and a coward, you know, all all at the same time. Um, you know, these are the people that God shook the earth through is, is people who had weakness and couldn't hide it. Uh, but also, you know, their, their hearts had been animated, um, by the truth and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, um, I don't know how you can love the gospel without being a weak person. Um, you know, uh, but, but, uh, but yeah, it's, we gotta be careful and, and, and we gotta have people in our congregation and maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a, maybe it's an elder. Um, we gotta have people who will be honest with us if they feel like we're oversharing, um, or if we, if they feel like we're undersharing, um, you know, and, and we, you know, every pastor, I think, you know, has an opportunity to figure out who those discerning people are to invite, you know, to speak honestly into our lives and ministries. I have those people. And I, I hope most of those who are listening have those people as well. 
Scott, that's where that's where I like to dig in a little bit, um, a little bit more regards to some some of the more recent maybe bouts of depression, anxiety that you may have had, uh, because you write in the book, you know, admitting self defeat is key to successful recovery. It involves raw honesty about your worst qualities and the destructive decisions you've made. So, give us an idea. How did that look like for you? I know I know you can't share everything, but give us a, a sense of how that looked like for you. And then, how did that facilitate levels of healing and recovery for you personally? That's good, man. I mean, where where do I start? I mean, I, I here's what I here I, I think here here's my most vivid memory, especially of the pandemic. Resenting our leaders, some of them for what felt like ghosting me, um, hmm. right. And, and, and ghosting the church, uh, and, and not, not accounting for the fact that their whole lives are not about me <laughs> and their whole lives are not about the church. Um, you know, I'm, I'm at this full time. They give, you know, they give freely of, of their time, uh, to serve and shepherd the church. And then the pandemic hits. And, you know, I, I think for a short season there, it didn't last very long, but for a short season, I, I, I just had this anger. Um, it was irrational. Um, it was an irrational kind of anger uh, at people for, for abandoning me and leaving me to hold the entire church on my shoulders, which is such an arrogant way to think as if the church is ever on anybody's shoulders except Christ alone, um, you know, in the good, good and hard seasons. But, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, these, these guys, you know, are trying to hold together their families, their, their work situations, their lives and, and how, you know, the pandemic has thrown their lives out of whack. And so I just, you know, the, just the, the accuser got to me uh, and and kind of turned me, it helped turn me into one for for a little while. And you know, one of one of my one of my colleagues here, you know, we have a we have a policy that anybody can speak truth to anybody. That there is no hierarchy of who can confront who and who can't confront who. Um, and you know, somebody on our our team. Um, you know, just came in privately in my office and said, Hey man, like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I know it's a hard time for you and everybody else, but you just seem, you just seem angry and not in a righteous way. Um, and I just want to encourage you to look at that. And I'm happy to talk to you further. If you want, if you have any questions for why I feel that way. And, and, you know, we sat down for a little bit and he shared with me how him and, and, and a couple of others, had experienced me in this kind of how I let my anxiety turn into kind of an unrighteous, unsympathetic version of anger toward people because I was scared, you know? Um, so that that's one. I have a hundred other things I could tell you about. Do you want to just stop there? Or you no, want it's to good. It's going? good. So I do, okay. I do think though, it's important to note that, um, when, when someone comes to you and brings that cause for concern, uh, a lot of times that story could end that that person was fired. And we've heard a lot of conversations about pastors who have been angry and led with anger and division and more. And a lot of that, in, in my view, is driven by people's insecurity and their own internal struggle. They want to look tough when really there's a brokenness that's inside. So I really appreciate the example you gave. So 
I guess the question that I would ask is, is, is how might we learn to respond better? And this is a big theme, of course, in Beautiful People Don't Just Happen. How do we respond better to the regrets, hurt, and fear? Because one of the responses for a lot of pastors and leaders, a lot of men and women in leadership and churches, is to respond by powering through and often in angry ways. That, is, that oh. has been exposed a lot lately. What's a better way to walk through the regret, the hurt, and fear? Yeah, I mean, I I think you're 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 describing Ed, the difference between um, doing it in the flesh and doing it in the spirit, and um, I, pastors and leaders. Uh, what's so important uh, is that pastors and leaders don't forget that that we need the gospel every day just as much, if not more than the people that we serve. And, um, you know, there, there's something about having a voice and, and the power of leadership in a community that can cause us to forget um, how much we need the daily grace of Christ. And if, if I could, if I could talk about Tim Keller for a second, um, uh, I've, I've found myself talking a lot about Tim in, in these kinds of conversations re- recently, uh, especially when leaders are in the room or, or leaders are listening in. Um, so I, I, I got to serve with Tim for five years. Uh, this was before he had cancer. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was all excited about the opportunity that, that, that Redeemer gave me to come and and serve at Redeemer for, for those many years, mainly because, you know, Tim Keller was probably the greatest, is probably the greatest influence still on, on kind of my model of ministry and, and what I think, um, you know, faithful, effective, fruitful pastoring, especially in an urban context looks like. Uh, And so I thought, well, he's, you know, in my mind, one of the greatest preachers, English speaking preachers of our time, if not the greatest, in my opinion, um, and, you know, has this stellar, you know, very comprehensive vision for serving the city and loving your neighbor. And it's all centered around the gospel and, and that sort of thing. And so I was all excited about that. Um, and, and then I got there and I realized, wait a minute, like th- this guy is really humble. Um He's um, he, he he he's not in love with the sound of his own name. Um, he kind of brushes it off when he wins a big award or gets recognized, right? Like like when he was uh, when he was announced to be, I think, the first and only pastor to ever make it onto Forbes, you know, top fifty most influential people in the world list. That's the kind of thing he would just roll his eyes at. Um, but where you'd really get his attention is if you had a criticism and he'd be like, you know, tell me more. Um, and, and this is a guy like anybody who's a public figure. Um, he got his fair share. He got his unfair share of criticism. Uh, never heard him dog somebody, never heard him, uh, talk back or insult somebody or gossip, even when it was the most unfair way off base thing. Uh, because he had this, he had this policy, uh, and he picked this up from John Newton, I think, one of John Newton's letters. But his policy was, even if the criticism is unfair, I'm always going to look to see if there's a kernel of truth behind it, 
that, that it might give me an opportunity to repent and grow closer to Jesus. Right. Mm. So on top of that, this is a guy who's prayed, he's prayed uh, through five Psalms every day for over 60 years. Mm. He's read carefully through the whole Bible at least once a year, uh, every year for over 60 years, had a deep, robust, committed prayer life. Um, you know, there's just all this quiet faithfulness. So like, if you want to know, like, how do you become Tim Keller, you know, read the Bible every day for over 60 years and, you know, submit yourself to your critics, uh, you know, for starters. But this is a guy now who's got an incurable cancer and he says he's happier than he's ever been in his life, um, you know, because of all that stuff that sunk into his heart. And, and this is all to say, this is a long circuitous way of saying, if your heart is not right, get your heart right or get out of ministry. Um, because it, it, you know, everything stands or falls ultimately on, uh, on, on a minister's character or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your success is not bound up in the size of your ministry. It's not bound up in, in, you know, your church's budget. It's not bound up in, you know, whether or not you have, get book deals, like it's not bound up in stuff like that. Your success is bound up on, on the degree to which your life does or does not in private as well as in public, um, resemble the Beatitudes uh, the attributes of love in 1 Corinthians 13 and the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. That is the measure of success. You know, remember Jesus didn't have a mega church, right? Like he, he had over 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection and only on only 120 followers at the same time. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think, I think our, our view of success is, is, you know, it's discipled too much by the American way and not enough by the Jesus way. And so, um, you know, aim at virtue and you'll get, you'll get success thrown in, but aim at success, you'll get neither to sort of steal a, a you know, a, a way of speaking from C.S. Lewis. Um, you know, it, it, character matters, um, being the same person around the dinner table as you are in the pulpit, uh, being the same person, um, you know, at a party uh, or, you know, alone in a hotel room as you are uh, leading a board meeting at your church is, is, is critically important. You know, one of the things that uh, church uh, leaders and pastors are discussing when they get together is, you know, how how normal has your church and church got, you know, attendance wise and operations, and you know, you hear stories of uh, pastors leading churches where everything's back to normal, and sometimes even better than normal. Uh, budgets are higher, attendance is higher, and inevitably it creates uh, for those who who they have not gone back to normal, they probably won't get back to normal. There's a bit of a shame. Uh, and this is very mm-hmm. common um, in, mm-hmm. in in rooms of pastors. And uh, how might uh, as as they're navigating through that, you know, some things that you wrote about in the book uh, here, Scott. Um, how might they resolve that shame uh, that's specifically tied to, you know, I mean, their church is not back to normal, and, and they don't know if it, it if it will get back to normal. Yeah, I I mean that shame, um, and I've you know I've felt it along the way at different times as well. Of of you know why aren't things humming along, uh, you know as they were before this pandemic, um, and um, you know for me that that was a that was a gut check when when that happened. Of you know wait a minute, um, how am I measuring um, success and um, the Lord graciously uh, introduced me to Isaiah uh, in a brand new way during the pandemic. 
um, what is easy to forget about Isaiah, right? Because, you know, we, we know Isaiah in the same way that we know Van Gogh. Like he was, he was the best of the best among the prophets in the same way that Van Gogh was the best of the best among the painters. Uh, I don't think Van Gogh sold his first painting until after he was dead. Uh, and he was a tortured soul, um, for his entire life. He spent some time in, um, you know, mental health facilities and, and, um, you know, just was a deep, deep struggler. And you look at Isaiah and, you know, we look at him in retrospect. Well, you know, there's Handel's Messiah that happens every year all over the world. That's Isaiah. Um, you know, you look in the new Testament, he's the most quoted, um, prophet uh, from the Old Testament in the New Testament, like like rock star, right? Well, what what what's easy to forget is that Isaiah never experienced any of that in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. All he experienced was decline, right? So so when we look at the the setup at the beginning, where God calls Isaiah into the ministry, uh, and there's this little little phrase that says, "Even though a tenth remain," um, that's a statement. Right after Isaiah started his ministry, his his congregation, as it were, reduced was reduced by 90%. And then for the rest of his ministry, all he got was hostility and pushback and rejection. And uh, you know, history suggests that he was sawn in two and that that's how he died. And this is the same guy that talked about how God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, God's ways are higher than our ways. Uh, it's the same guy that talked about, you know, the, the, the one who would reign on David's throne and of the increase of his kingdom, there would be no end. It's the same guy that gave us the suffering servant, uh, um, you know, picture in, in Isaiah 53, the same guy, you know, who's brimming with optimism about how the people of God will soar up and mount with wings like eagles and run and not grow weary and walk and not be faint. This is a guy whose ministry was terrible. <laughs> like, like he signed up for a ministry that was essentially career suicide for him and, and stuck with it for the duration of his life. And, and that's all to say, um, you know, think about too, how, how Paul was in prison for, for so many of his letters um, and how almost every book of the Bible was written by a slave. Uh, somebody was, who was in prison um, you know, somebody whose country was being occupied by a more powerful, hostile foreign force, uh, somebody who was awaiting their own execution. These are the people who wrote the Bible, uh, the most influential book in the world. These are people who wrote the Bible from that place. And, and, and so I guess my encouragement would be, think about the solidarity that you have with the giants uh, in that regard. You know, Hebrews chapter 11, it's very clear about all the heroes of the faith that we look back on and admire and name our children after. None of them experienced what was promised in their lifetime. That's, that's like the takeaway from Hebrews 11 for a pandemic environment or for a frustrated pastor situation. Don't underestimate what God might be doing in your small thing. You, you might in glory be introduced as being infinitely more influential than the megachurch pastor in your city. Um, because again, it's all about your character. It, it's all about um, the degree to which you've drawn near to Jesus. That, that's the measure of our success. Um, and, you know, the outcomes, I mean, look at Jesus. How did it end for him? Um, you know, uh, crucified in his, you know, 30s with, with all of his closest friends and family abandoning him. 
That's how it end, ended for the most successful man who ever lived. And of course, we have resurrection. Well, guess what? So do you. Uh, you have re resurrection awaiting you as well. Um, so uh, I went on maybe too long with that answer, but uh, it's a real well, passion a little, point for leaders. Bit, uh, it's a little bit stark. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's mm -hmm. uh, you know, Zinzendorf, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that reminds us that it's not ultimately about us. And again, the book is Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, How God Redeems Regret, Hurt, and Fear in making in the in the making of better humans. In the book, you're right. The more the soul is worked and stretched to its limits, the more able it becomes to endure suffering and enjoy God all at once, unquote. I think that's kind of a recurring theme in there. And I, I find it challenging and hopeful. So what does enjoying God in the midst of difficult times and suffering, what does that look like? How can we move towards hope when we're in the midst of some of those struggles? Whew. Uh, yeah, it's a hard, it's hard to answer a how-to question on that. Um, yeah, totally. You know, but, but, you know, I think, I think the, the, the action steps, again, they're, they're as old as time, um, you know, to get our, get our noses and our hearts in the scriptures undistracted uh, as often as we can, uh, to be deeply engaged uh, in in the life of a local church with all of its foibles and all of its glories and and um, you know love God love neighbor kind of stuff. I mean it, the basic stuff is what forms us uh, when we submit to it over and over and over and over again. Again, I'll, I'll just refer back to the things I shared about what what formed you know Tim into the the man that he is. Um, but I think suffering, I know suffering also has a place in our formation, a, a meaningful, um, positive, and ultimately life-giving place in our formation. Um, you know, Paul talks about it in Romans 5, where, you know, we rejoice in our sufferings because it produces character and that produces hope and hope doesn't disappoint. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the, one of the um, analogies I use in the um, in the, in the book is, um, is, is banana bread, right? It's, it's one of my favorite things to eat. And, um, if anybody's ever made banana bread, you know, that the key ingredient is a rotten banana. It can't be, it can't be a ripe banana. It has to be rotten. Uh, that's the magic. And, and, you know, you, you put it in with all the other ingredients, the flour, the sugar, the, you know, the butter, whatever else is in there. And, turn the heat up on it and out comes this wonderful, moist, delicious. Uh, I love that we get to call it bread, even though it's cake, uh, makes it feel more <laughs> healthy, but um, you know, there, there, there's a metaphor in there uh, for the way that God, you know, we, we, we see it in Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things together for good. And I think the key word there is together. Um, you know, it, you, 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 you take the, you isolate the rotten banana and eat it by itself. It's going to nauseate you uh, in the same way that trials and tribulations will, if that's all we, if, if that's all there is for us. Right. Um, but if, if it's mixed in um, with, with all the goodness that God is, is working out um, God, God even takes, takes the evil things according to Joseph in Genesis. Remember uh, what, 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 what human beings mean for evil, what, what the enemy of our, our soul, Satan, means for evil, God turns it into good. I mean, let's look at the book of Job, right? But I, I think that the key for, for us is we, we've got to tap into that uh, in, in, 
in as personal of a way as we can. And of course, that, that, that includes a robust relationship with the scripture. But I think it also includes being in relationship with people who are ahead of us in life, who've experienced these things that we're going through, whatever those things are, and have emerged from those things or found joy in the midst of those things because of Christ. Um, we need mentors. And um, yeah, because I, I, we're, we're not made to do this alone. So, I, you know, a, a good, you know, mentor who's, who's been through it before. And, that, and that's the, you know, the, the title of the book um, comes from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross quote, actually, where she, she says, the most beautiful people we've known have known defeat, they've known suffering, they've known disappointment, uh, and have uh, made it out of those depths, and, and, and not in spite of those depths, but because of those depths, They've become people of the deepest compassionate concern, the people who show up the best for other people. Um, there's something formative that happens in the same way that there's something formative that happens in the gym when you, you know, do bicep curls or bench presses or whatever, and you feel like you're getting weaker while you're in the act of working out uh, your, your body. But the truth of the matter is you're, you're, you're becoming stronger. And next week you're going to be able to do, or next month you'll be able to lift more weight or do more repetitions because of submitting yourself to those experiences that where you felt like you were getting weaker when actually you were getting stronger. And I think the soul works in the same way. That's a good word. You've been listening to our conversation with Scott Sauls about his newest book, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, How God Redeems Regret, Hurt, and Fear in the Making of Better Humans. You can learn more about Scott and his ministry at scottsauls.com. Thanks again for listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments to leave us a review that'll help other ministry leaders find and benefit from our content. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.